kids at Christmas time. It's always a big winner. <laughs> uh, glad to have our baby kids read the story of Mary for us. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I'm so glad that we're talking about Mary for a number of reasons. One, because the Bible talks about her. But also because there is a great deal of confusion within Christianity as to who Mary is and, and what her role is and how we should uh, respond to her. Have you recognized that? Have you realized that? That there are people who would go so far as to say we should worship Mary. We should venerate Mary. We should even pray to Mary. And for me, that's not a biblically defensible position. And then there are those who have kind of swung the pendulum way over to the other end and said, just forget about Mary. Let's not talk about Mary. Let's ignore Mary. And you ever notice that in life when someone kind of takes something to an extreme, the way we correct it is we swing the pendulum too far in the other direction. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We are going to go uh, to the Word together and see what the Bible has to say about Mary. And we're even going to take a look at what Mary has to say about herself in a lot of ways through Luke in his gospel in Luke chapter 1. And before we do that, let's pray together. God, we invite you to speak this morning in and through your word. We invite you to be at work here and to illuminate the scripture for us. God, as I prayed in the first service, uh, and I would just, just uh, bring this prayer before you even again on behalf of those who are gathered here, that uh, there are so many in our congregation, God, that are hurting right now. Uh, we've lost valued uh, members of the Bayview Glen Church family over the last several weeks and even those who have lost spouses and fathers and mothers and children even in the last months. And as we approach Christmas, uh, realize, God, we recognize together that there are those among us who are hurting and the holidays aren't always happy for those. Um, and, and it seems like that kind of, that soundtrack of grief gets turned up a little bit. And so I invite you, Holy Spirit, and ask you, Holy Spirit of God, to be their consoler, be their comforter, be near to them in this time um, as they still grieve loss of, of loved ones. So now, God, as we turn to your word, we ask again that you would um, magnify yourself in and through this book called the Bible. And we submit ourselves to it and to you this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's what we're going to do this morning. Not only are we going to study the Bible, but we're going to learn how to study the Bible. Because I don't just want to teach you the Bible, although I do want to do that, and we are going to do that this morning. But I want to give you some tools to help you in your study of the Bible. And one of the tools that came in really handy for me this week in my study of Mary is a tool that most Bible scholars, the, the good ones anyway, agree on. And, and, and it, comes, it was reflected in a quote, uh, a tweet anyway, by uh, Tim Keller this week. And, and most Bible scholars and exegetes agree that this is the right way to go about studying the scripture. And, and here it is, uh, reflected in a tweet by Tim Keller. It's up here on the screen. It says, uh, to begin to understand a section of Scripture, answer first, what did the original author intend to convey, intend to convey to his readers? What did the original author intend to convey to his readers? Because we get in trouble when we read the Bible and immediately ask the question, what does this say to me? Because you, you miss 2,000 years of history, <laughs> 
and the geographical gaps and the linguistic gaps, we have to ask ourselves, what did the original author intend to convey to his readers? And the original author of the Gospel of Luke is, not a trick question, Luke. Come on now. The original author of the Gospel of Luke is... Not me, Luke, another guy, 2,000 years ago. So we're going to ask this question, what did Luke intend to convey to his readers this morning? So let me set up the context for you, and then we're going to read that passage again and examine it together. Here's the context. There was a very old couple, and I don't mean that, you know, like that's not a disparaging remark. It's just a neutral statement of fact. They were getting a little long in the tooth, okay? Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah was one of about 18,000 priests uh, that lived in, in kind of the area surrounding first century Jerusalem. He himself did not live in Jerusalem. He traveled to Jerusalem for about two weeks per year to serve in the temple there and to carry out his duties as a priest. His wife's name was Elizabeth, and they had no children. She was barren, and they were beyond the childbearing years. So for those two weeks of the year, Zechariah traveled to Jerusalem. He's with his like priestly division there. The division of Abijah is what the Bible tells us. And he goes into the temple to burn incense. This would have been a really, really unique opportunity for Zechariah, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Not every priest got to do this. So as he goes into the temple to burn incense, he's there, and beside the altar of incense appears to him an angel. The angel's name is Gabriel. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, no way, I'm too old. He kind of argues with this angel. Side note, if an angel ever shows up to you, number one, do not argue, okay? It's a heavenly being. Number two, if an angel shows up to you, come talk to me. We'll, we'll work you through some things. So an angel shows up to Zechariah and tells him, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, no, I'm not. There's no way. And the angel says, because you argued with me, you are now mute. Like you can't speak because you argued with me and I'm the messenger of God. So Zechariah comes out of the temple from burning incense and all the people are surrounded. And they're like, dude, what took you so long? And Zechariah is going... You know, he's got to write it all down for him. It, this is, this is a, just a side note, by the way. If I ever came to church and, like, did my duty as a pastor here and then came home and I was unable to speak, it would be like Amy's dream come true. It's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. So what I've always been praying for, that he would just shut up for a couple of months. So, so the angel says to Zachariah, you're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. And Elizabeth is celebrating because she is going to have this child that she always wanted, even though she's beyond childbearing years. And Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. They were related. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the story again that we just heard these children read. And I want you to examine it for details. Make observations. Don't think, what's the Bible saying to me? What's God trying to say to me? Think, what is Luke trying to get across to his original readers? You've got the context. Let's read it. It's up here on the screen. Luke chapter 1, starting verse 26. Luke writes this, in the sixth month, that's not the sixth month of anything other than Elizabeth's pregnancy. She's just entering her third trimester, okay? In the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel, same one from Zechariah, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And he, that's the angel, came to her, that's Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's greatly troubled because an angel is talking to her, and that's atypical, okay? And the angel says, don't be afraid. Why? Because she looked terrified. Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am from Virginia? I'm a Virginian. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, that's Zachariah's wife, your relative, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I asked myself this week as I studied this passage, what is it that Luke is trying to convey to his original readers? And the first thing that stood out to me was the inordinate amount of detail that Luke includes in his birth narrative. Did anybody else catch that? Did you see all the detail? I mean, it is an extraordinary amount of detail. We know a lot about what's going on. We know Mary's relatives' names, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We know that she's living in Nazareth, and we know the province, Galilee. We know who the governor was in Judea at the time. That's Herod. We know the name of the angel. We know exactly what the angel said to Mary. So here's the first thing that Luke wants his readers to know, and subsequently or consequently, actually both, subsequently and consequently, us. He wants us to know that the birth narrative of Jesus does not start with the words once upon a time. This is not a fable. This is not a myth. This is not a story. There are modern scholars that would tell you that it is. John Dominic Crossan is one. Marcus Borg is one. And what they can say is that they disagree, but what they cannot say is that Luke did not intend us to take this literally. He most definitely intended to, for us to take this literally. This is a historical document. That's why he includes so much detail. It doesn't start once upon a time. There were other myth genres and fairy tale genres and fable genres in multiple languages coming from multiple regions all over the first century in antiquity. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus sounds nothing like any of them. You know what it sounds like? A historical narrative. So you can say, I disagree, or I don't think it's true. That's up to you. What you cannot say is that, oh, this is just a myth. It's just a story. It's just a fable. Because Luke clearly intended for us to take it as historical narrative. That's why I included so much detail. It does not start with once upon a time. Well, how does Luke's narrative start? If it doesn't start with once upon a time, how does it start? Well, it starts this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them 
to us. Now watch this because I find this fascinating. Look what Luke is saying. He's saying, I was not an eyewitness, but I did a lot of interviews and I did a lot of research. And when stories didn't line up, I just didn't include it because I wanted to make sure it was affirmed. But when things were confirmed, when things were affirmed, I wrote them down in this book for you to read because I interviewed all these eyewitnesses and they delivered these things to me. So pop quiz. When an angel appeared to Mary to announce to her that she was pregnant with Jesus, there were only two beings present in that conversation. Who are the two beings? Mary and an angel. And we can safely assume that Luke is not getting his information from an angel. Why? Because he would have told us, I got this from an angel. So where is Luke getting his information from? Mary. Now that's pretty cool if you think about it. Could you imagine? Because this was written after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven. Mary's now 40s. 50s maybe, 60s, and you've got this faithful historian named Luke that sits down with her and goes, would you just tell me about how you found out you were pregnant? Would you just talk to me about what you saw and what you felt and what you heard? That's, that's pretty cool as far as I'm concerned. That's pretty cool. And so we're not just asking, what did Luke want to convey to his original readers, but maybe even more so, what did Mary want to convey to Luke? What would Mary want us to know about herself? What would Mary want us to know about her role in the birth narrative? And what Mary wants us to know shows up in what scholars call the Magnificat. It's just the first word in Latin, and it's her, of her song that she sings. Magnificat is the first word in Latin of the song that she sings subsequent to finding out that she's pregnant with Jesus. She begins to say or sing this song. And watch how her song begins, because this is what Mary really wants us to know. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. If we were to ask Mary, Mary, what do you really want us to know? She would say, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, what does it mean to magnify something? Well, it, it means to make something small larger. It means to help us see something that, we, that was a little hazy before with more clarity, with increased clarity. Uh, Amy and I had the opportunity to travel to Africa a number of years ago. We sponsor a couple of children down there. I encourage you to do the same, actually. Compassion International, World Vision, a couple of great opportunities to sponsor children. And we went down to Tanzania to visit these children that we sponsored. And uh, we, on the last couple of days that we were in Africa, in Tanzania there, we took the scenic route on the way out. And the scenic route in Africa is fantastic. It really is. And, and it's better if you, if you were in an armored vehicle because on the scenic route, there are a lot of things that could eat you and you want to be in an armored vehicle. So I remember being in this kind of armored Land Rover thing with a cage around it, whatever, and 
I'm in there, and Amy, my parents were there, and a bunch of friends that we travel with that also sponsor children there. And we're driving through Tarangire National Park. We're driving through the Ngorogoro Crater. And we saw all kinds of stuff. We saw lion. We saw hippo. We saw hyena, which are nasty little animals. We saw gazelle. We saw all kinds of stuff. We saw two leopard that had just killed, like, a little baby deer or something. I was thrilled. Um, and they, they drug the thing up a tree, and they were sharing a meal together. And so when we were in that vehicle, everyone had a pair of what? Binoculars, right? And when we saw the coolest stuff, I mean, the stuff that Amy and I were like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. We could never do this again. This is amazing. We're watching a lion just run around, an elephant, giraffe. I mean, this is fantastic. What were we doing in the vehicle? We were examining our binoculars really closely, weren't we? And we were going, hey, what kind of binoculars do you have? What's the zoom on those things? Hey, where'd you get those? Amazon? Those look pretty cool. Of course we weren't. Because the binoculars aren't the thing we came to see. What's the thing we came to see? Lion and zebra and whatever else. So we were using those binoculars to help us see the thing up close, to help us see two leopard in a tree that just drug a gazelle up there. See, Mary is like binoculars. <laughs> she wants to magnify the Lord. She wants to help us see God's plan more clearly. She wants to bring it to bear and bring it closer for us. Mary, if she was here with us, would say, no, 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 no. I'm just the binoculars. It's not about me. I want to help you see God more clearly. I'm not the thing you came to see. There's another thing, capital T, that you came to see. And I just want to help you see it more clearly. That's Mary's intention here. And that's Luke's intention for his original readers. So what is it that Mary would want to magnify about the Lord? What is it that she wants us to see with crystal clarity? What is it that she wants to be the binoculars through which we look to see the plan of God? Well, she tells us in her song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For, this is why, this is what I want you to know, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Keep going. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant in Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary's song is absolutely dripping with God's passion to pour out his grace and blessing on those who are humble. I want to say that one more time. Mary's song what she wants us to know about God, what she wants to magnify about God is that he longs to pour out grace and blessing and goodness on those who are humble. It's all over the place. In verse 46, she says, God looked on my humble estate. She says, his mercy is on those who fear him in verse 48. 
She says he scattered the proud in verse 51. He brought uh, down the mighty and exalted the humble in verse 52. In verse 53, uh, she says that God filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. In verse 54, she says that God helped his servant Israel. It's all about God pouring out blessing on those who are humble, broken, contrite, ostracized, forgotten about. Even God's choice to use Mary demonstrates to us that God longs to pour out his blessing and goodness on those who are humble. You want to know why? Because the typical age of betrothal in first century Jerusalem was 13. So Mary's no more than 15, but likely about 13 years old. And remember last week, we learned that when she came to consecrate Jesus in the temple, she offered an offering of two, offered an offering. She offered a sacrifice of two pigeons, which was the offering of the poor. She's poor. She's 13. It's an unwanted pregnancy. And remember, Luke tells us that she was from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, you want to know why he names the province? Because no one would know where Nazareth was if he doesn't name the province. Anyone from Timmins? Timmins people. Timmins. Are you? Okay, listen. Here's the great part. I didn't just knock you. I just, I just aligned you with the mother of God. So it's a really nice compliment, okay? It's a really nice compliment. Mary is from Nowheresville in the middle of nowhere. She's from this obscure place. She's poor. She's 13 years old, and she's got a baby on the way. God chooses the humble to bring his blessing into the world. This is what Mary would want us to know, that you cannot know God without knowing humility. You cannot know God without knowing humility. It's impossible. And listen, listen closely now. It's not difficult to know God without knowing humility. It's impossible to know God without knowing humility. You want to know why? Because James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud. It's not that he's neutral towards the proud. He's actively opposing the proud, but he does what? He gives grace to the humble. I have people in my life, even people that aren't Christians, people that are Christians, they have a difficult time hearing God, experiencing God, knowing God. And a lot of times, over time, I find it's because their ears are clogged with pride. You know, humility opens our ears and helps us to hear God. Humility is the only frame of mind by which we can receive the grace of God. Now watch, now watch this. God wants to know you. Can you believe that? I'll let that sink in for a minute. I know that like, that's a churchy thing to say, but the God of the universe desires to know you. And if humility is the only frame of mind by which you can know him, what can you guarantee that God will do if you are not humble? Humble you. <laughs> now, for some of us, that's like, oh, okay, good. And then for some of us, well, ain't that right? <laughs> Why? Because as humility goes up, knowing God goes up. The greater our humility, the greater our ability to know God and hear God. As humility goes up, knowing God goes up. I've got a, I've got a good friend uh, who just uh, had a heart attack five or six weeks ago. 
his son called me. He's about, he's early 50s. His son called me one day and he said, it's been a tough day in our house. I said, what's up? He said, my dad had a heart attack this morning. I'm like, oh man, you got to be kidding me. What happened? So he told me his story. The interesting thing about my friend is that uh, he's like a workout fiend, like a workout fanatic. He doesn't drink alcohol at all. He doesn't smoke at all. Uh, he works out a lot, which is, this is essentially what this means is his life is really boring. That's what that means. And he eats clean. It's like, dude, like, find something to do, right? So he plays squash every morning, and then he'll go run 10K, and then he'll play 18 holes of golf, and then I'll meet him for a workout at lunch. I'm like, and he's like early 50s. I mean, he's crazy. I mean, he's craziness. Like, and then he has a heart attack out of nowhere. Like, like how does that happen? We're totally confused. But subsequent to his heart attack, he started to realize that God's desire was to humble him, to break him, so that he might be known, to take some of that pride out of his ears that had kind of clogged his ability to hear the voice of God, so that my friend would be a little closer to the humility of Mary, so that he could hear the voice of God. Let me read a text, actually, that he sent me this week. He said, I just got to say how good and amazing God is. So much grace and protection for us in the last month or so. Among the many blessings, I was given a clean bill of health and go ahead to resume all life activities and exercise with no residual damage. And listen close now. I was numb and taking for granted so much previously. I deserve nothing and have everything. That's it. That was the text I got. See, humility looks like gratitude. <laughs> humility looks like I don't deserve anything and God has given me everything. Humility looks like listening to God and others. Humility looks like submitting to God and others. And when we are humble, Mary teaches us, this is what God, she wants to magnify about the heart of God, that he pours out grace and blessing inexplicable on those who are humble. Now, Mary, and even her story, not just a person, but her story, would magnify one other thing about the heart of God for us this morning, and I think this is fantastic. And this one other aspect of the heart of God that Mary magnifies for us, that she acts as binoculars for us, shows up in Mary's genealogy. Anybody ever come across the genealogies of Scripture and you're going, this is the who begat, what is begat this and begat that? And I don't even know what begat, beget, begotted. What is this? What is happening here? Okay, let me just, let me just run it through with you real quick. And, and just kind of because we're parked on the genealogies here for a minute, I want to help you with something. In, in terms of apologetics, people, have everybody said there's contradictions in the Scripture? There's contradictions in the Scripture. Anybody hear that? Okay. Here's one of them that someone might point out to you, and I want to just give you a tool to help you answer this question as well, should it come up. Remember, we stay above the line on discourse. We don't shame people. But just here's an answer to one of those, you know, supposed contradictions, but it's also going to help magnify something about the heart of God through the story of Mary, because this is Mary's genealogy. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says this, that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. 
And what happens after that in Luke's genealogy is he says, the son of Heli, the son of this, the son of that, the son of this, the son of that, the son of this, the son of that, the son of this, the son of this person, okay? All the way back, it's a genealogy. And it begins with Jesus, his father Joseph, and his father Heli. So we're gonna play this little game that Arnold Schwarzenegger plays in Kindergarten Cop. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Okay, so really simple question. Who is Joseph's daddy? Say it. Heli. That's not complicated. Except, look at Matthew's genealogy. Matthew writes this. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So who is Joseph's dad? And who is Joseph's dad? Oh, you stink at this game. And there is one of the contradictions in Scripture. So let's pray and close. Um, I'll help you out. Okay. Luke, remember, is a historian. And Luke is writing history. And in history, in genealogies, the line of an individual was always traced through the father, legally speaking. Always traced through the father. That's why Luke includes this little parenthetical reference here. says, as was supposed. This could also be translated legally speaking or according to custom. Jesus was the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. But for those reading, they would have gone, Heli's not Joseph's dad. That's Mary's dad. But Luke is tracking Jesus' maternal genealogy, he names Joseph because legally speaking, he has to. He's tracking Jesus' maternal genealogy. Does everybody see it? Okay. He's naming Joseph because he has to. Legally speaking, that's what he's saying. According to custom, I got to say Joseph, but I'm going to track it through Mary. Now, Matthew says, I'll just track it through Joseph, his father, Jacob. Can I help you? Good. If it doesn't help you, just send them into my office and I'll answer it for you. Okay. Now, here's what we know about Jesus. Here's what Mary's lineage and Joseph's lineage tells us about Jesus. Don't bypass the genealogies because watch what this magnifies for us. To help you understand what this magnifies for us, I want to tell you a story about Kaya and then we'll come back. We were on vacation this last year over Christmas and uh, Amy and I were staying with my parents and my brother and his wife and their five children and my sister in kind of this, you know, house, guest house thing on the beach. And it was fantastic until the stomach flu started going around our family on our family vacation. And, and, and lucky for all of us, Kaya was the very first one to get it. She's like a year and a few months old, right? And she gets the stomach flu. So in the middle of the night, it's like pitch black, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and we hear Kaya hollering from her crib, which we had placed in the washroom, which is just good parenting. And so she's hollering from her crib, and Amy and I are thinking, like, this is not normal for her to wake up in the middle of the night. Something must be wrong. So Amy picks up the monitor, and she looks at it, and it's kind of grainy, it's kind of dark. We can't really tell what's going on. And so Amy says, well, she must have lost her pacifier. She must have spit out her pacifier, and that's what's woken her up. So I'm going to go in and fix it, but I'm not going to turn on any lights. I'm not going to make any noise. I'm just going to go in and fix it. So Amy tiptoes in the other room, right? And she opens the door, and it's pitch black, 
And she puts her hands down to feel for the pacifier. And she thinks, now, this crib was not as squishy when I put her down. Turns on the light, and it's like a vomit bomb exploded in that room. I mean, it's just all over the place. So Amy was like, Luke, I need your help. So I come in the other room. My parents come in the other room. And my kid has just made an absolute mess. <laughs> I mean, it's all over her pajamas. And it, parents, have you ever, anybody ever done this before? Yeah, you know this drill. Don't act like this is a gross story because you have your own. Even after the first service, people were like, I got a vomit story that trumps that. I'm like, you know what? Maybe like one vomit story a day. Okay, could be kind of the quota, okay? And I'll tell it, all right? So it's just an absolute mess. So, of course, what I did was I turned on the hose, and I hosed Kaya off, and I hosed off her crib, and then I put her back in. No, of course I didn't. Of course I didn't. Why? Because I'm a good dad, and I love her. And in order to clean up her mess, I don't mind getting a little messy myself. I don't have any problem reaching down into, I mean, it was just, it was bad. Picking up my kid and going, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. Are you sick? Are you feeling bad? And it's all over me. I don't care. I don't care. See, here's what the genealogy of Jesus tells us, that Jesus was born into a mess. There you go. Jesus was born into a mess. I mean, back then in first century Jerusalem, people used their genealogies like a resume. Like, they didn't put bad stuff on their resume. They didn't put bad stuff into their genealogies. If there were some sordid characters in their genealogies, they would just omit them completely. they just delete them. It's like the same reason that you don't have, I got fired one time on your resume. It's like the same reason you don't have, you know what, I really wanted to raise and they didn't give it to me because my performance stunk. You don't put that on your resume. So they would omit those type of people from their genealogy because the genealogy was like a resume. But neither Luke nor Matthew omit those individuals. In fact, they include all of them in the genealogy of Jesus. And I started writing all of them down. I tracked back this genealogy. I'm going, man, Jesus was born into an absolute mess. And the reality is I don't have the opportunity to read all of them. Like all of these sordid characters, all of these rapscallions and scallowans. And that's just, that, that's an understatement to say that they're rapscallions. These are nasty people in the genealogy of Christ. L listen, Jacob is in his genealogy. Uh, Jacob lived a habitual life of deceit and scheming and he stole his brother's birthright. He had two wives and two concubines. Judah collaborated with his half-brothers and sold their youngest brother, their baby brother, sold him into slavery. Eh, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. He's in the genealogy of Christ. Tamar, Seduced Judah in order to conceive a son and preserve the family line. Rahab was a practicing prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile. Whew, bad. Not for us necessarily, but back then, oh yeah, real bad. All in the genealogy of Christ. David was a great guy until he was about 50, had an affair, got somebody else's wife pregnant, and killed that guy to cover it up. Solomon. In the genealogy of Jesus. Remember talking about Solomon this year? Yeah, he was a stellar guy. Like 700 wives, 300 concubines. M Manasseh. 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and one individual after another, the Bible says the very same thing about them, all in the line of Jesus. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Bible goes so far as to say that Manasseh, again, is in the genealogy of Jesus, shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And every one of those sordid characters is in the genealogy of Jesus, paternal and maternal. Jesus was born into an absolute mess. So here's what God is telling us through Mary. Here's what Mary magnifies for us, is that in the incarnation, God did not criticize our mess from afar. He did not stand back four to six yards and just hose us off. (laughs) In the incarnation, God entered in through Jesus and swooped up his kid and said, I don't mind getting a little messy, babe. I don't mind cleaning up your mess because I love you so much, and it doesn't bother me to get a little messy. In the incarnation, God did not pronounce judgment on us and criticize us, but he sent his son into the world, not to condemn, but to save the world so that he could forgive and redeem our mess. In the incarnation, God got all up into the middle of our mess. And he demonstrated through Jesus that he was willing to get messy if it meant cleaning up our mess. Because sometimes the only way to fix a mess to get a little messy yourself. This is the God that we have. A God that's willing to get messy, to be born to a 13-year-old in the middle of nowhere where there was no room at the inn, a humble young girl with a pretty gnarly family tree. Jesus got all up into the middle of a mess so that he could redeem it and love us through it and show us grace in the midst of it. And friends, our job as the church is to exhibit the heart of God to the world. Our job as the church is to follow in the Jesus way. So listen close to me. Now look up at me. Sometimes... Following in the Jesus way means getting all up into the middle of a mess. Sometimes following in the Jesus way means that you might get a little messy yourself. Now that sounds okay until you start talking about the implications. And for some of us, this might be a little bit challenging, but I'm going to say some challenging things this morning. And we'll close with this. It is time that the church stopped judging and criticizing from afar and just kind of, I'll just hose it off. It is time that the church followed in the Jesus way and stepped all up into the middle of any mess that we see and say, I am going to live out the grace of Jesus. Here's what that means. Sorry, I just preface this. I'm about to say some things. I'm I'm about to say some things you may be tempted to read into. Don't read into them. Just take them at surface value. Okay, don't read into this stuff. Is he saying this? Is he saying that? Does he mean this? No, all I mean is what I mean. 
And don't send me an email and don't call me after the facts. I'm not going to read them. The poor, poverty, is not a problem to be solved. The poor are people to be loved and shown grace. And it may mean that you get a little messy. But that's following in the Jesus way. The broken and bruised and lonely among us are not problems to be fixed. They're individuals who are made in the image of God. They're people to be loved, and it might mean that you get a little messy. Homosexuality in our culture, the brothers and sisters among us who have same-sex attraction are not problems to be fixed from afar. They are people made in the image of God to be loved well and shown grace. And it might mean that you get a little messy, but that is following in the Jesus way. Those with gender identity confusion among us are made in the image of God. They are not messes to clean up. They are people loved by God. And if following in the Jesus way means that we get up in the middle of a mess, and we don't mean getting messy ourselves, it means wrapping our arms around them and saying, you are loved and cared for. The prostitutes among us, you know, because Jesus had one in his family tree, The worshipers of other gods among us, you know, because Jesus had some of those in his family tree. Those with an unwanted pregnancy among us, because Jesus had a mom like that. They are not messes to be judged and criticized from afar. They are people made in the image of God, loved by him so much that he would send his son into the world, didn't mind getting messy himself, in order to redeem and love and save and show grace. That, my friends... Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the Jesus way. We're going to conclude and sing one of my favorite Christmas songs. Choir and George, if you come lead us, and let's pray together. Jesus, our desire is to be holy, set apart different, that we would shine like stars in the universe, as your word says, as a church. And simultaneously, our desire is to be incarnational people. People who, like you, oh God, love so much and care so much and have just grace pouring into us, that it overflows and spills out of us, that we are willing to wrap our arms around anyone and everyone, even if it means we get a little messy, even if it means it's difficult, even if it means it's not fun, because, oh God, you loved us that way. Jesus, you entered into a mess. Each and every one of us was a mess and still are a mess God, you love us so, so much. Teach us to be those kinds of people. Teach us as well, oh God, in those moments in our life where we feel like we are not hearing you well. Maybe we would ask ourselves if it's pride clogging our ears. God, would you be so kind to us as you were to Mary and even to my friend that I told a story about that in those moments where we are distant from you, 
that you would bring us to our knees once again in gratitude and submission and obedience and in humility so that we might hear the very voice of God. We love you. We're glad to be called sons and daughters of the King. In Christ's name, amen. This is one of my favorite Christmas hymns uh, for all kinds of different reasons, but one of the lines says, He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse of sin broke the cosmos. It broke the world. That's why we have a broken world around us. But Jesus came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as it goes, God's grace goes even further. Let's stand and declare the gospel together as we sing joy to the world. Great to see you this morning. Our motto this year as a church is for the city. And our city needs grace. Our city needs that message of joy. Our city needs somebody to wrap its arms around it and say, I know that Toronto FC lost. I know, I know that you experience brokenness and hurting every day. I know you feel like a mess. But Jesus entered into it so that he could redeem and save. Can I tell you a little bit about him? Live for the city this week. Tell somebody about him. Uh, Now that we've had fake digital snow inside, go outside to the real snow. Be safe going home. See you next Sunday. Bye.